Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. On today's pod, a biotech startup license template that could reduce university VC negotiation time 80%. CSL prices the first hemophilia B gene therapy to reach the market, and an FDA and NCI study that will serve as a prototype for streamlined, pragmatic trials. All right, Stephen, I'm going to go to you first here. I know you're a little jet lagged after uh, flying home to Minnesota over the break, catching a nice wind by your Vikings and now you're back in the right. land of proper football to enjoy the, the World Cup. So you wrote about this consortium of academic institutions, VCs, and law firms that are looking to cut the time and cost of licensing IP or life sciences startups by 80% through the publication of a model term sheet. How did this come together and who are the players? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. So. This came together, this was a sort of a group of, I guess, if you think of the kind of the top tier academic institutions and VCs. So I won't run through all the names because it is a bit of a long list. You can see the list in our story on, on BioCentury, but um, a couple of examples are Atlas Venture, Harvard University, Johns Hopkins, MIT, Omega Funds, RA Capital, these sorts of groups. Essentially, some of them just got together and said, sort of the premise was, we all kind of know how these negotiations are largely going to shake out. When you're looking to start a company based on technology out of university, in most deals, there tends to be this bracket where you know royalty rates fall, equity sort of interest falls. There's a formula that typically sort of ends up being the, the way these deals shake out. Yet, as both the academics and the VCs described, the players here still all go through the motions of negotiating all of these different terms in these term sheets and you know, spend anywhere from six months, nine months, even a year to get all these terms hammered out when that time and that money could be better spent, you know, actually working on the science or you know, pushing these programs forward. And so these uh say maybe more experienced uh, groups decided to get together and just really first it was just to share their experiences. What was it that was often, you know, something that they had problems reaching an agreement on? Where were the areas where might be easiest to reach an agreement. And, and really, it started with the idea, can we come up with a sort of a template that we could use? And once they've really realized that actually a lot of these terms don't play a huge role in the downstream economic outcomes for these deals, in that they're, they're not a huge deal, you know, they could really narrow down to a few terms and numbers that really partners should focus on. Yeah, I liked the uh, the one quote you had from uh, Oren Hershkowitz of Columbia Technology Ventures when he said, we all know how the movie ends, yet when we get together, we would all pretend like we've never seen the movie. So what's the typical timeline that they're hoping this gets it down to? Sure. So the hope, I think, is that you can basically cut about 80% of the time that's spent out of this. So, you know, what would have been a six to nine month process, they're now hoping you could get down to one to two months. And if it's 
you know, if it's someone that you've maybe dealt with before and you already have some sort of an established trust space with, there's hoping that they could even narrow that down to down to one month. And a lot of this hope is also based on the fact that for equity financing deals, 10, 15 years ago, basically there was a group that put together a template for equity financing deals for venture capital, you know, raises. And that template has now basically become the standard that essentially if you're looking to raise money and you're not using that template, um, as one of the VCs put it, they really question, well, why are you not using that template? And so the hope here is that this essentially becomes basically that for, for doing these licensing agreements. And so the other rationale here is because when they were having these discussions, what they realized was that oftentimes if there was a breakdown in a negotiation, it was often because you did not trust the other person or the other party that they were, you know, being fair or being fully transparent. And sometimes that would stem from negotiating around a really small, you know, what would in the end be a very insignificant sort of part of the deal. And so that's the other aspect here, I think, is that if you can come to the table with 80% of the deal kind of essentially pre-agreed, you're really reducing the number of variables that can contribute to mistrust in that partnership. And so the hope is also that not only are you cutting down on the time, but you're also cutting down on or essentially mitigating some of those variables that could lead to a deal breaking down. So hopefully, not only will you have faster deals, but potentially you'll have more of these deals getting done. And then what's the measure of success here? Is it, are they hoping to become like the model? I think so. Yeah. I mean, NVCA has sort of signed off on these. You can okay. download this, this template on the NVCA website. You can download it from the AUTM website, which is essentially the organization for technology transfer offices. So they've got the backing of, you know, a lot of the big players here and even firms that weren't directly involved in the creation of this. I mean, they've got some big firms and big universities that are also sort of endorsing it as sort of third parties. So I think the, the idea here is to try and get some quick buy-in from some of the biggest players with the hopes that this hopefully will really be helping, you know, mm -hmm. the smaller players, you know, that that don't have the experience and maybe don't have that context that when they come to a table, they know that this should be acceptable. And so this really establishes a lot of that context, hopefully. Excellent. Well, you can learn more about this reading Stephen's story on biocentury.com. Thank you for that, Stephen. No problem. And uh, we'll let you uh, roll off to bed. Thanks for covering for me last <laughs> week while I was away. And uh, good luck with the jet lag. I know uh, <laughs> we're all dealing with it after uh, various trips of late. Lauren, the limits of gene therapy pricing are once again being pushed, this time around with the approval of CSL's Hemgenics. The price was set at $3.5 Can you put that price into context for us? Yeah, so this is now the third time this half that we've had a gene therapy launch with a record-breaking price. Uh, we saw Bluebird's two gene therapies launch in the U.S. at $2.8 million and uh, $3 million at the end of the summer. And now at $3.5 this is the new high. I think the issue here is that there's a lot of uncertainty that may not necessarily be baked into that price. So the other gene therapies that we've seen come onto the market this year in the U.S. are ex vivo gene therapies. In these cases, you're editing the stem cells with a lentiviral vector, which integrates into the DNA. And 
is propagated when the cells divide. While there's still some uncertainty about long-term effects, I think there's more optimism that the effects will last for 10 years or more. When you get into an in vivo gene therapy, like what we've now seen with the hemophilia B drug, there's a lot more uncertainty about how long this will work. We have two-year data. We know that the factor levels remain pretty high, but we don't necessarily know that this is going to last for 10 years. So these exceptionally high gene therapy prices, they make sense because they're replacing very high alternative therapies. You know, regular factor infusions cost a lot of money. And you're sort of making the assumption that this is going to replace many years of those expensive alternative therapies. And at this point, I think that's that's not necessarily a given. I know Bluebird had a, uh, a value-based agreement component to its at least one of its therapies. Does this have that sort of component? Well, so CSL told us in a statement that they will be signing value-based agreements with payers. The difference is that they haven't disclosed upfront what the terms of those agreements will be and if there's going to be some kind of a standard agreement. What I think was really interesting about Bluebird's uh, Zintegro agreement is that they're offering the same or very similar terms to, um, it seems like to any payer. So there are certain small and mid-size insurance providers that will be able to access a standard contract that offers up to 80% rebates in the event that a patient does not respond in the first two years, which is higher, I think, than we've seen for other value-based agreements for gene therapies. That's something that could really have an impact on access. We don't know what will happen with the larger payers, but the assumption is that they will be offered similar terms. We don't know yet what exactly will happen with the new hemophilia B therapy. I think this is an indication where we also could get a good idea of whether or not the therapy is working because there are ways to measure that ways to measure that that you can capture in claims data. You know, we'll know if patients have to go back on factor infusions and things like that. One of the things that's kind of intriguing about this compared to other very high-priced therapies is that there's really no prospect for these therapies going biosimilar or generic once they've been approved. You know, that's going to be it. And, and it's even really a question, I think, of whether there's going to be a competitive landscape. Do you think that there's going to be an opportunity for other companies to provide gene therapies for these same indications? And if there is, is there any reason to think that they would compete on, on price? I think there is. Not specifically for hemophilia B, but I've, I've spoken with companies falling behind with additional sickle cell therapies. And the idea is that people are expecting uptake to be relatively slow. You know, there's some hesitation around gene therapies. It's something that takes a while to get out to patients. So the expectation is not that everyone who has hemophilia B right now is going to be treated with this gene therapy in the next six months before anything else gets to the market. And so that's one of the arguments for, for people who are coming out with these value-based deals is that once you have one in place, you may need to compete on price with similar value-based agreements in order to have this therapy be something that's reimbursed by pairs. You know, you have to have terms that are competitive. So I guess the other thing, now that we've got starting to get a critical mass of gene therapies approved, and they've all got these really shocking prices, is whether we're going to see next year, whether there really is a commercial market for these, whether, there's, whether it's going to, to work, 
or if there's going to have to be some kind of a reset that makes it possible to make them available at lower prices before you're going to get the kind of uptake that's really going to change medicine. Good point. I think that's right. All right. Thanks for that, Lauren. And uh, I'd also just like to mention that CSL has rights to this therapy under a 2020 deal with Unicure. That company's shares sharply rose last week after the approval. So kudos to Unicure. All right, Steve. FDA and NCI, uh, as you wrote a few days back, have banded together with two pharmas and an academic cooperative trials group to run a clinical trial of a combination for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. The group hopes this trial, which FDA is calling Project Pragmatica, will be a model for quickly answering urgent questions that can shape clinical practice. Am I right in sensing that Richard Pazder has something to do with all of this? Oh, you know, if there's a project, then it's Richard Pazder, right? So he talked about this at the recent Friends of Cancer Research Annual Meeting, along with Monica Bertignoli, the director of the National Cancer Institute, NCI. And both of them said that this Project Pragmatica fits into a bigger picture, which is a very deliberate attempt by FDA, led by Rick Pazder, and by Monica Bertignoli, to speed progress in cancer drug development by improving clinical trials. So in this case, the challenge was to follow up on an intriguing result from a phase two trial as quickly as possible. So one of the arms of the lung map master protocol, which we've written extensively about in the past, found a strong signal that a combination of two drugs, Ceramza from Lilly and Keytruda from Merck, was effective in non-small cell lung cancer patients who had already been treated with a checkpoint inhibitor and a platinum-based chemotherapy. The problem was that the trial wasn't designed as a registration trial. There wasn't enough certainty to the results for FDA to take a regulatory action based on the trial, but it's really important if it's possible to help these people. It would be really important to do it, and it would be really important to do it as quickly as possible because they really have dire prospects and nothing good that is available for them. So what um, Pastor said is that he was thinking about what, what could be done to get an answer quickly. And he said the answer came to him like a lightning bolt. And he said, you know, since the safety of both drugs is very well known, there's really only one important question. Does this combination extend the life of patients with advanced lung cancer who have been retreated? And he said that since the answer really isn't known, it's acceptable to randomize patients to either receive this two-drug combination or a standard therapy. And so then FDA got together with NCI. And they decided that by excluding all potential secondary outcomes and by making the inclusion criteria as simple as possible, and I think because all of the parties were really motivated to move really quickly, they could get this trial launched and finished really quickly. I think they're probably going to get it finished quicker than it would have taken usually to design and start enrolling patients in a trial that has all the normal inclusion criteria, all the kind of secondary outcomes and all the questions that academic physicians would like to get answered or, or that often that FDA requires that companies answer. So they've, they've created this pragmatic trial. The only endpoint is whether patients live longer or not. And they've also said that this is a model, as you said at the beginning, for other potential pragmatic trials. And I've heard from people at FDA 
that FDA and NCI are already discussing a second pragmatic trial of another kind of cancer therapy. I don't know the indication yet, but I'm sure we'll be hearing about that pretty soon. So will this be something that agencies such as NCI and FDA need to run, or or could it be a model that companies themselves could run without the agencies down the road? Well, there's no reason why companies couldn't do it on their own. But I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more interest in NCI and FDA and the cooperative groups running trials of drugs in cancer for follow-on indications because the Inflation Reduction Act really reduces the incentives for companies to invest in the development of follow-on indications. If it's a small molecule, for example, the company's going to have nine years before they're potentially subject to price setting, at least for the Medicare population. And if you think about it, if you've got a drug that's been on the market for some years, and then you've got a trial that's going to take some time to complete, uh, you start bumping up against that nine-year period pretty quickly, and, and you have a very small period of time to recoup your investment in it. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot more interest in getting the public sector involved in follow-on studies of cancer drugs and cancer drug combinations. And pragmatic trials can be one of the ways that we're going to see that happening. Monica Bertignoli at the um, Friends of Cancer Research meeting said that one of her top agenda items as NCI director, she was recently named that position, one of her top priorities is streamlining clinical trials and making them much more targeted on producing actionable data that can change the way that cancer patients are treated. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of these kind of things, and, and a lot of them are going to involve collaborations or partnerships between NCI and private drug companies. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. Uh, Lauren's CSL story and the Project Pragmatica story, of course, up on biocentury.com. Check them out. And thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next week. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.